Good morning. I'm really excited about this week and next week and maybe even into a third week we'll see how far we go because we're discussing the Trinity. And there have been times in class either through uh, the biblical literacy class that we started with uh, uh, or through the church history class where people have said, um, hey, would you teach on this or hey, would you teach on that? One of the subjects that's, that I've been asked to teach on by a number of different people that I've gotten emailed requests, hey, did you teach on this? Can you send me the lesson? Is the subject of the Trinity. And while we've never dedicated a class to it, it hasn't really fit the model of what we were teaching. It fits perfectly in what we're doing with Paul. So we're going to be talking about the Trinity this morning. And as I was writing the lesson and thinking through the lesson, I was reminded of something that happened to me last fall. Uh, most of you know that, that I am a lawyer by trade. And as a lawyer by trade, I had a, a wonderful opportunity to spend uh, some time with one of the justices on our Supreme Court, uh, on the U.S. Supreme Court. And we were eating a meal together, and, and uh, there were a group of about eight of us, and we were having a discussion over Lonesome Dove. And what's better, the movie or the book? This was a highbrow legal conversation. And the, the conversation turned towards me, and it was my turn to, to address it. And I said, you know, I think I like the book better. Uh, the question was asked, what did you do first, the movie or the book? And I said, well, I did the movie, and I fell in love with the characters that were portrayed by Tommy Lee Jones and Robert Duvall. They're just great characters. And when the movie was over, I wanted to spend more time with my buddies, those characters. And since they were gone, I had to go to the book. But I read the book. And when I read the book, I got what was in the movie and more. So I think I like the, the, the book better. I said, in fact, I liked the book so much that after reading the book, I read the prequel and then I read the sequel. Well, before I could get the word sequel out, the justice of the United States Supreme Court put his hand up and said, stop it right there. I said, excuse me? He said, what was the word you just used? I said, prequel? He says, well, what does that mean? And I said, well, in a series, that's the one that precedes the events that precede whatever. He says, that's not a word. And I said, yes, it is. <laughs> he said, no, that's not a word. And I looked at him and I smiled and I said, Yes, it is. <laughs> and he said, it's not an English word. And I said, it's in the English dictionary. And he said, well, maybe it's in Webster's Third, but I don't count Webster's Third as a dictionary. It's sold out after Webster's Second. I looked at him and I said, do you count the Oxford English Dictionary? And he said, of course. I said, it's in there. He said, no, it's not. I said, yes, it is. He says, do you know how to do that Google thing? I'm sure you can find out. So I got away to my room where I had my computer to see if I was right. And I did that Google thing, 
And lo and behold, right there in the Oxford English Dictionary in front of Pre-Raphaelite is prequel. <laughs> he, um, I'd never ask him if he liked the taste of crow. I thought that might be a little disrespectful. But uh, uh, he has a letter to the editor of the Oxford English Dictionary urging them to take it out of the third edition because (laughs) he does not believe it properly belongs in there. Um, If I had been the lawyer he thought I was, if I had been a lawyer who sat around making up words to destroy the English language, then at least I would have been in good company because lawyers have been making up words for a long time. Perhaps you've seen ads for Tertullian, the North African hammer. (laughs) Tertullian was a lawyer that lived in North Africa in the late 100s. Maybe you're not familiar with that ad. I found this one too. Tertullian, attorney at law. It took some work. Tertullian was a North African lawyer who was born about 160, and he converted to Christianity sometime before he wrote his first Christian work in 197 A.D., obviously. It's a Christian work. But Tertullian would write books on a number of different matters, and he wrote some in Greek and some in Latin, but he's the first Christian theology theologian writing in Latin, really, bringing the church and Christianity into Latin. And so it was Tertullian who was writing a book, and in the process of writing his theology book, he made up a word. It would not have been in the dictionary if he had checked. He made up a word. He made up the word Trinity. Talking about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Oh, there had been a Greek writer named Theophilus who had called him a trios. Kind of a threesome, if you will, in Greek. But in Latin... This lawyer-turned-theologian, Tertullian, took a Latin word, and we will have our Latin lesson for the day, took a Latin word, tree or trini, we get tricycle from it. The Spanish number three is tres. Spanish is a Romance language from the Romans, from Latin. Same thing. The Latin word for three, trini, And he kind of made it a little folksy. So he made it kind of a threesy thing. Trinitas. We get Trinity from it. That's how it's evolved into English today. But it was a word he made up. It's kind of, it would be like us making up the word threesy. You know? Um, or, or, Or threistic. You know, God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they're threistic. Okay? Uh, and, And he made it up. Just flat. Came up with it. 
And it's been in the church ever since. So, what does this mean? Well, number one, Trinity is not a word we're going to find in the Bible. It was made up out of Latin by a guy who's writing over a hundred years after the Bible has been uh, finished. So if you want to look in the concordance, which is a list of all the words in the Bible, you want to look up Trinity, you're not going to see it. It's not there. But yet, it's something that we all talk about because we know it is the bedrock foundation of our faith in some ways. So if the the tree for the Trinity is not there... Where does the Trinity come from? Well, it's grown from the roots of Scripture. In other words, what, what we have... The, the, the Trinity is not something that someone sat around and made up. It is an attempt to put into words and try to understand what Scripture teaches about God. You with me? Okay. With that introduction, let's get into today's class. And I've got us a roadmap um, that was put out by CFBC.org as opposed to that may look like one that Texaco put out in the mid-60s, but it's not. Our roadmap of the Trinity class, what we're going to do is we're going to set out the problem, then we're going to look at Scripture without considering Paul's writings of Scripture, and then we'll look at what Paul says in Scripture. Okay? So, first, let's set out the problem. And how better to do that than to perhaps some music? Blessed Trinity. Now here's the problem. God in three persons, blessed Trinity. But we open our Bibles and go to the very beginning of the Bible. And one of the first of the five books of Moses in the book of Deuteronomy, we're going to read God telling the Jews, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. God in three persons, the Lord is one. Have you ever had a non-believer, a non-Christian believer, perhaps a Jew, perhaps something else, saying, well, I don't agree with Christianity because I only believe in one God. It is the major complaint that an Orthodox Jew would have with Christianity or a Muslim would have. Because both faiths believe that we Christians have three gods because we speak of God in three persons. And three and one are different. That passage in Deuteronomy is just one chapter after the Ten Commandments. And the number one commandment of the Ten Commandments is, You shall have no other gods before me. Now that's the problem. 
I want us to work through that problem and come to a greater appreciation of God and His wonders. One of our class members came up to me last week and she said, I'm excited about the Trinity. I've had questions about it. I've, I, I want to know about it. I want to hear what you have to say about it. And she said, one thing that I've held on to since she made a reference to it in the church history class, and she reminded me of something. So, Ann, thank you for this slide. It was when I urged us to have, as we think about God, a reality check. Class participation moment. If you have a fist, please make it and look at it. What you're looking at is roughly the size of your brain. That means inside this hard noggin, you have a bunch of gray cells the size of your fist that are firing off neurons while I'm speaking. And what we're trying to do in our collection of gray cells the size of our fist is understand the inherent relationship and, and, and makeup of the Lord God Creator who has made every being and can listen to seven billion people on this planet at the same moment praying while He has the universe in the palm of His hand. Oh, but I have really good gray cells. I think I can handle it. So I say that to say with reverence and trepidation and only because God has made revelation of himself to us do we try and understand what he's given us. Now, with that, as we flesh out a little bit more of the problem, I've got to ask you, who says God is three persons? Who says God is three persons? It ain't in here. It's not, it's not in the Bible. Class participation moment. Sandy, come here, please. Uh, John, come here. Michelle. Michelle. We'll take two Michelles. Come up, come up on stage. Y'all are going to be on video. Come on, come on. Michelle's? No, Michelle's? No, no. no. Vicky, Vicky, Michelle, Michelle. Come on. Steve? Come here. Do you know what we've got up here? We have a collection of persons. Okay? Look at everybody. These are, are you a person? 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 Sort of? Person? Okay, y'all can sit down. Thank you. Now, we've got a collection of persons up here, right? Is God three persons? Okay, we've got to go back and have another Latin lesson. Second Latin lesson of the day. Our English word person, which we use in God in three persons, which is part of the creed of the Christian church, of Orthodox Christianity, our word person comes from the Latin word persona. The Latin word persona, if I might be so bold as to borrow my Cassell's new Latin dictionary, you can look it up. Persona, from which we get person. There it is. Persona. 
a mask as worn by actors in Greek and Roman drama. Oh, it becomes then a role or a part or a character represented by an actor, sometimes even the part. We can talk about what persona you give off, and we still sort of use the word that way. But person in the Latin, persona, means mask. Back in Greek and Latin drama, so that you would know which character the actor was playing, they would hold masks up. Because one character, I mean one person would play a number of different characters. And that mask that they would hold up, that was their persona. That was the word for it. They wouldn't say hold up your mask, they'd say hold up your persona. Well, God in three persons, who do you think we owe for saying persona, the mask that's being worn to play a character or a role, who do you think used that term for the first time and applied it to God? Oh, you bet, our buddy Tertullian, the lawyer. Same guy that came up with Trinity came up with persona. And from that, the Latin creed developed God in three personas. God in three roles. God in three masks. God in three different expressions. Blessed Trinity. This is where these words come from. Now, we cover this, and, and, and one of the readers of the lesson emailed me back and he said, you know, you really need to talk about what's at stake. <laughs> I'm sorry, I was hungry when I did this. What's at stake? It's a PowerPoint typo. What's at stake? Well, what's at stake is simple. It's, it's who is God? What's at stake is what is his gospel? What did he do? Who is the person of Christ? Who is he? A man, a good man, a prophet, or is he God, fully God? What is truth? Do we have a faith built on truth or do we have a faith built on fiction? I was deposing a man one time who had given a speech. I was taking his sworn testimony. He was the president of a company, the, the CEO, big dog guy, did not like me in his presence. And I said to him, I said, you gave a speech on Wall Street to protect your company, and in that speech you said that you had done a study on this drug, and the number of back problems people had on the drug was, I mean heart problems that people had on the drug, was the same as heart problems they had on a sugar pill. And his answer to me was, well, I believe that to be true. I said, well, here's the study. I said, on your drug, they had six events. On the sugar pill, they had one. How can you say that it's the same? Six is the same as one. He said, well, in the world I walk, six and one are the same. I did what you did. I pulled out a dollar bill. I handed it to him. I said, give me six. <laughs> he said, what? I said, we're going to start trading money. This is my day. I said, I'm going to keep giving you one. You keep giving me six until you finally cry uncle and say, wait, there's a difference. 
I mean, what's, what's our, our church built on? Is it something as, 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 as seemingly contradictory as three and one being the same? That's what's at stake. That's why this is worth studying. It is worth knowing who God is in greater detail. It is worth knowing the gospel in greater truth. And so that's what we're about here. So now that we've set out the problem, let's look at Scripture and consider what Scripture says. There was a Dutch Reformed theologian you don't know what the Dutch Reformed theologians are and you really care to, go find it on our biblical literacy website and church history. But there was a guy named Herman Bevink who wrote a systematic theology. A, a systematic theology is a theology approach that says I'll develop a whole system or I'll write up a whole system of kind of like A to Z and just explain everything. And he wrote one back in the early 1900s and in it, when writing about the Trinity, he said, the seeds that develop into the full flower of the New Testament Trinitarian uh, revelation are already planted in the Old Testament. And he, like a number of other scholars, said, you can go to the Old Testament and you won't find the Trinity in, in full form. But you will certainly find indications that it's coming. The, you can't read the Old Testament without seeing that God is a little bit more complicated than simply uh, one God. There's, there's some depth to it somewhere. For example, if we go to the Old Testament, you'll find God using in a number of places plural pronouns. Now understand all of the scriptures that I'm giving you right now, there are alternative explanations beyond a trinity. But as people of faith, one legitimate explanation for these scriptures is that God is showing that, that there's more to him than meets the eye. For example, he says in Genesis 1, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Doesn't say, I will make man in my image after my likeness. It's us and our. You see? There's, there's plurality to God. Oh, some scholars say that's because this is very, very primitive. And before the Jews became monotheists who believed only in one God, they must have believed in a bunch. And that tradition is carried forward here in this scripture. Well, I don't believe that's fair. I, I feel confident that those types of things would have been purged by the people who stoned anyone who believed in more than one God. How about this? Genesis 3.22 Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. How about Isaiah 6.8 And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Who shall I send and who will go for us? There is a plural pronoun usage. There are other hints at the Trinity in the Old Testament. Um, we've got hints at the Trinity when we look at how God, in essence, seems to be speaking of another aspect of God or another person of God, persona of God. Look at Genesis 19.24. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. It's as if the Lord on earth rains it 
from the Lord out of heaven. I've got more examples of these in the handout than we have time to cover here, so I'm going to keep cruising through this. Um, There are prophecies in the Old Testament of the Son that show the Son to be both distinct from God and yet God. Look at this passage out of Isaiah 9. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. We know this passage out of the Christmas season, right? And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. A child is born who will be Mighty God. The child, Jesus, the Micah passage, Micah 5.2 that we know about. But for you, Bethlehem Ephratah, from you will come forth one who's the ancient of days. See, there's, there's a distinction between the Messiah that's prophesied about and God himself. And yet the Messiah, the coming one, the son, is also called God. This same distinction is found in the Old Testament with the spirit. The Spirit is different from God, even though the Spirit is the power of God at work. Look, for example, bless you, on Isaiah 48. Draw near to me. Hear this. From the beginning, I've not spoken it in secret. From the time it came to be, I've been there. And now, Yahweh God, the Lord God, has sent me and His Spirit. See, the Spirit is apart from God. It's something distinct from God. And we see it there. Now, some scholars believe that this is the reason we have the what they call the threefold passages in the Old Testament. Let me give you the two main ones. First, in Isaiah 6, it's holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Who was and is and is to come. The whole, actually, that's the way it is in Revelation. In Isaiah 6, it's the whole earth is filled with His glory. But it, it doesn't just say holy. Isaiah is caught up in a scene of heaven in Isaiah 6. And he's before the throne of God. And the angels are crying out around the presence of God. Holy, holy, holy. Did they do it because they knew there was going to be an English song that used all three that would have sounded kind of funny with just one? Or might it be three acclamations of holiness because of three presences of the one God? The Lord of hosts. Another uh, passage, uh, one of the threefold passages... Uh, It's the threefold uh, uh, blessing out of numbers. It's the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. The Lord bless you. The Lord make his face shine. The Lord give you peace. That's the threefold recognition of the Lord. So these are passages in the Old Testament that scholars have used to recognize that that, uh, there are certainly hints in the Old Testament of a plurality within God, of something more complex 
than a simple, solo, one only God. Let's go to the New Testament and see what Scripture says in the New Testament. There are a number of New Testament passages that show not only the distinction between God the Father, God the Son, and Holy Spirit, but shows that though distinct, they work together. They work as one, in essence. Look at John 14, 16, which is a passage we've dealt with in this class already, where Jesus says, I, Jesus, will ask the Father, and He, the Father, will give you another Helper. Jesus says later, that Helper is the Spirit of Truth to be with you forever. So there is a distinction here, even as God is working in, in, in unity. There is a distinction. Jesus says, I'll ask the Father. If there's no difference between Jesus and the Father, then why is He asking the Father? Why does He draw a distinction? If there's no distinction between the Father and the Spirit, then why is the Father sending the Spirit? There has to be some distinction there, and that's what Jesus recognizes. Or how about this passage out of 1 Peter 1? According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. See, distinctions between those three, even as they all work in harmony and in a unity. Now, the problem is going to ultimately be, okay, well, it's starting to sound like there are three different beings here. And yet we know there's one substance. There's one and there's three. Where are those lines drawn? Let's keep looking at what we have today. The Father is God. The New Testament makes that plain in a number of passages. Look at Jesus on John 20, verse 17. Jesus said to them, Go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. To one place, but in the breadth of His expression, God, the Father, is clearly God. Now, the New Testament teaches that Jesus is God as well. Among the passages that say it, John 1 couldn't be any clearer. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have beheld Him. It's Jesus. John makes it clear, not only as John quoted Jesus, because John was our last quote, remember, for the Father being God, that was from John. Same John says Jesus is God. And the Spirit is God. The Spirit is God. In Acts 5, Peter says to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit, to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? You haven't lied to men, you've lied to God. See how he interchanges? You've lied to the Holy Spirit with you've lied to God? It's the same thing. The Holy Spirit is God. The Father is God. Jesus is God. So with setting out the problem and considering these scriptures, let's add to the mix now what Paul says. Paul says, not surprisingly, exactly the same thing. For Paul, you have three distinct, uh, um, um, uh, three distinct beings, or uh, 
See, you've got to be so careful how you say this. For Paul, there is a distinction among the three, and yet the three work together. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, a passage we looked at last week, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all and everyone. Paul is writing in a way where he's being redundant. He's saying the same thing over and over with new words. But it's, it's called a parallel structure. It's a Hebrew approach to things. And he's saying, Spirit, Lord, that's the Lord Jesus in Paul's terminology as we covered in class, and God, God the Father. There, there are distinctions among the three. He uses three different words, but they're all the same thing, too, as he puts it together in the passage. Um, spirit, uh, uh, same as Lord, same as God. Now, look at this passage. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. As he's ending 2 Corinthians. There's distinction. Paul's not just using one word. There's distinctions between the Lord Jesus Christ here and God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And yet, it's all uh, in a united working together. Now, Paul also writes of each as being God. Paul says, grace to you and peace from God our Father. He says that in multiple places. God our Father. The Father is God. There's no question in Paul's mind. How about Romans 10? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. And look what he does. Paul quotes the prophet Joel. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And he quotes Joel. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Joel. The word Lord in Joel is Yahweh. It's Yahweh God. It's Yahweh who spoke to Moses from the burning bush and said, I am who I am. Yahweh, Yahweh. It's the Yahweh God who said, you shall have no other gods before you. Paul is clearly saying when we call on the Lord or say Jesus is Lord, we're saying Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. Just as much as God the Father is. Jesus, Paul says it about the Spirit too. He says in 2 Corinthians 3, the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. So Paul writes of each as being God. So, how do we solve the problem? God in three persons, blessed Trinity. Does that mean God wears three different masks, but there's one God? Does that mean that there are three different beings, but somehow they all fit together, and when you've got them all together, you've got God? 
You'll hear examples of an apple has a core and flesh and peel. Or maybe an egg has a yolk and white and a shell. Or maybe H2O can be water, steam, or ice. There are all sorts of human analogies to try and get our arms around this. But I want to tell you another approach to understanding it. And it involves not only understanding what the Bible says, but it involves understanding what the Bible says is not accurate. There's a term called negative theology. Positive theology means not, oh, good theology, but positive in the sense that we can positively say this and this and this. Negative theology doesn't mean bad theology. It's used in the sense of we can definitely say this is not true and this is not true and this is not true. We can define the boundaries by defining what's inside or we can define the boundaries by defining what's outside. Does that make sense? So I cannot, I, I, I'm dying to tell you how I, I, I come down on some of this stuff and, and try to open it up and help you understand it more. But unfortunately... This class is merely the prequel <laughs> for those answers, <laughs> and you're going to have to come back next week. <laughs> so um, recognizing that, what are our points for home? Number one, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's one God. There aren't three gods you've got to make happy. If you say a prayer to the Lord Jesus, you don't have to worry that maybe you prayed to the wrong God and God the Father should have heard it. If you say, thank you God, you don't have to feel like you left out the Holy Spirit. There is only one God. And you, own, and, 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 and you only have to get right with one God. If you grieve the Holy Spirit, you've grieved God. It's not like American Idol where you've got a core of votes and you only need two out of three to get it. Well, I've grieved the Holy Spirit, but Jesus is forgiving and He seems to be in type with the Father, so I got two out of three. No. There's one God. The Christian faith does not teach that there are three gods. That's heresy. There's one God, and that's a good thing. Because that's the one God that knows your name. And that's the one God who made you. And that's the one God who calls you. Number two. Jesus said, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There are three that Jesus references in that passage. Now, if we remember, I've put this in a few lessons, name for people back then did not mean um, simply a label that you go by. It wasn't simply something you put on your name tag or have on your driver's license. 
Your name was your character. It was who you are, and it was what you've done. And so if your name didn't fit your character, they'd change your name. Mothers were famous for naming their children after what they'd done during the birthing process. I will name this one, He Caused Me Much Travail. And there are people named things like that in the Old Testament. Jesus has no trouble saying, well, this is your name, but I'm going to call you that because it fits you better. When Jesus says baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, he is absolutely giving us reason to baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and to say those things like Scott did this morning when my nephew Davis was baptized. But he means so much more than a trite formula. Jesus means you baptize them because of who God the Father is and what He's done. Because of who the Son is and what He's done. Because of who the Holy Spirit is and what He's done. It's the character, the essence of these. You don't, these aren't simply names. These 